0: Last time on HI101, we talked about the roots of Caribbean piracy in the settling of the New World, as well as the conflicts between Spain and other European nations, most prominently England and France, that led to an environment that not only allowed but encouraged privateering in the Caribbean. Today, we're going to talk more about specific pirates, as well as the factors that finally led to the decline and near extermination of piracy in the Caribbean. Let's begin. Okay, I'm here on HI101 with Yumiko hutchin
1: Hello. How's it going? Good, how are you?
0: Not too bad. We've been talking about pirates, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically Caribbean piracy, because, man, we needed to focus that one down.
1: Yeah, apparently.
0: And uh, last time we talked about kind of the the number of different events that kind of came together to make the Caribbean such a hotbed of piracy. That's right. uh, Specifically in the 17th century, because we have all these nations kind of at war in Europe, and things playing out in the Caribbean where it was actually kind of best for most nations to kind of let piracy go or even encourage it in the Caribbean. Right. Which is kind of interesting. It is. But also really explains a lot about why... It was so rampant at that point in time. It's mm-hmm. almost easier to allow criminals to kind of run free uh, and and attack your enemy in this case, Spain, yeah. uh, than it is to try and keep them under control. It's it's kind of to your benefit to let them. Yeah,
1: let them the know. historical context for piracy is a really interesting one, and yeah. I didn't really realize like how much like overlap there was in that sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of those things that. I think we, we kind of come across when we're kids and you kind of get these mm-hmm. very romantic stories about pirates and the, the, the adventures that they get up to. And it's kind of interesting to step back and go, like, hang on, how did things get this <laughs> out of control? Like, yeah. what, what was going on that could possibly allow this to happen? Because it's, you know, piracy is a very violent crime.
1: Yeah, And it is.
0: it's one of the things that's kind of missing from the whole, you know, Treasure Island, Pirates of the Car- Caribbean narrative that we kind of grow up on. Mm-hmm probably the best uh, thing to go over next is to talk about some of the famous pirates uh, that you kind of come across when we're talking about pirates because yeah let's do it that's kind of where a lot of the fun comes from is these like really personal <laughs> stories about these individuals who get up to these adventures we've talked a whole lot about treaties and wars of succession and all of that stuff let's get into some of the fun stuff
2: yay <laughs> uh,
0: we talked a lot about Sir Francis Drake uh, the last time because he's almost of a different breed of pirate and that he was Basically commissioned by Queen Elizabeth directly. He was much more of a privateer than he was a pirate. Yeah. Which at that point in time at least is a much uh, is a very important distinction. The fact that he's is being uh, issued a letter of mark, being told to attack the Spanish. Permission certainly... slip for piracy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a permission slip for piracy. That's exactly what we called it. And I mean, of course that's not recognized by the Spanish, but it, it does lend some legitimacy at least to his actions, and that he's given some orders. Mm-hmm. The pirates that we're going to talk about today from the golden age are of a very different breed in that there's not even really any uh, hint of a veneer of legitimacy here. <laughs> These are the the real, like, absolutely unapologetic criminals that we, that we tend to hear about. The
1: heart of piracy.
0: Exactly. And I figured we'd start by talking about Henry Morgan. All right also known as Captain Morgan. Yes. As in the rum.
1: As in the rum.
0: Rum's got a big place in sort of pirate lore. And it's, again, one of those things that we kind of know about pirates, the whole yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum, all of that. Then
1: why is it gone?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and why is the rum gone? (laughs) But that's another thing that's kind of interesting to put into some context, namely the sugar trade in the Caribbean, right? Mm -hmm. You have to remember that a lot of the wealth that was coming from those islands was in the form of sugar plantations, Mainly run by African slaves, or not run by, but uh, you know, getting their manpower from African slaves, and just making tons of money from growing, uh, processing, and refining sugar, Mm -hmm. often into molasses rather than necessarily like the white sugar that we would think of. Right. But still, there's some of that uh, processing happening at those very early stages, and then shipped either directly back to the European. Com- uh, countries that owned these colonies or a little bit later on they would actually start shipping them up into the the 13 colonies like the American colonies right. for processing there. The U.S. actually used to have a really big uh, stake in the rum trade. like They were some okay. of the largest rum producers like Virginia and the Carolinas. Uh, yeah. And that would really kind of stick around right up until uh, Prohibition which absolutely ruined um, <laughs> rum production for obvious reasons. But up until then rum was the drink of choice in the united states
2: mm-hmm.
0: but anyways it was all about that sugar and it was all about that rum that's coming from the sugar now henry morgan didn't really have anything to do with the company that now makes captain morgan <laughs> however it, it is named after this guy and he was a, a real pirate uh who really lived uh, about 1635 to 1688 welsh privateer he actually was a an admiral in the royal navy for a while mm. uh which is kind of a common well i mean not necessarily being an admiral but but serving in the royal navy was fairly common for a lot of the pirates that we're going to talk about, as well as for just pirates in general, interesting because a lot of the time, what happens is that they get into sailing through service in the in the navy, right? Realize that it's much more lucrative to move to private
2: ventures,
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, be- because I mean, the pay is better, the uh, the level of autonomy is better. Yeah. Upper mobility in the Royal Navy is very, very, very low. I mean, if you weren't essentially noble and able to b- buy an officer class in the navy you probably were never going to make it any higher uh than you know a few ranks up uh, uh, up above Mm -hmm. just a a common seaman so moving to piracy was a way of actually making some money there's a lot more risk there but also a lot more reward so by 1658 i mean and that's also common for these uh pirates we often don't know anything about their first 20 30 years of life because they really didn't do anything that notable uh, until they turned to piracy. And that's when people started paying attention to them, which, again, kind of speaks to the appeal of it in some ways. Mm-hmm. By 1658, he was in Jamaica. Remember that uh, in the 1650s, we talked about the British uh, taking over Jamaica from the Spanish, specifically 1655. And then that governor basically invited the privateers in to protect the, the city of Port Royal uh, from the Spanish.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He was kind of part of a slightly later wave of British sailors moving to Jamaica to protect Port Royal under this kind of amnesty or, or, you know, unofficial turning away of, of, uh, from, from, uh, recognition of pirate activity. Right. He saw that as a big opportunity and he decided to, uh, to go ahead and, and move to Jamaica and take advantage of that. By 1665, he's part of the, uh, these missions that are kind of not quite official, but kind of official from the, the governor of Jamaica, where he's basically sending these privateers out to, take Spanish islands, Providencia and Santa Catalina. He takes the city or he helps take the city of uh, Trujillo in Honduras, uh, Granada and Nicaragua. So like these major centers of Spanish power. Basically, the the British government government through the governor of Jamaica is sending these pirates out to do all this dirty work because they don't have that strong of a Royal Navy presence here yet. It's still technically Spanish waters, although they're losing their grasp quickly, right? Yeah. By 1665, King Charles II actually issues orders to crack down on piracy, but the governor's got himself in so deep with all these different pirates that he decides to actually kind of just ignore (laughs) that order because he realizes that he's put himself in an incredibly difficult position where he's been allowing these people to function as pirates. He's he's given them a lot of license to commit some very, very illegal activities, (laughs) and yet it's doing nothing but help the crown Albeit indirectly, I mean, he's allowing them to, he's allowing these privateers to take their own cut, but it's keeping the Spanish at bay, it's keeping Jamaica secure, mm-hmm. and it's keeping money flowing back to England. So he basically straight up ignores this order, and in fact, starts issuing more and more letters of Mark, making sure everyone that uh, that wants one can have one. At this point, Morgan Absolutely takes benefit of this. He's pillaging all across the Caribbean, looking for any Spanish ship that he can find, taking yeah. the rewards, taking it back to Jamaica, turning it in for the somewhat uh, legitimate rewards that are available to him as a privateer. Sometimes, other times keeping it for himself. But for the most part, he's kind of in that old privateer tradition of, of piracy rather than the, the straight up cutthroat, you know, buccaneers. Buccaneers is actually a really interesting word. It comes from French, uh, boucanier. Hmm. which is to smoke because these guys couldn't actually land at any uh, proper ports. So they would land on uninhabited islands and Ah. uh, catch wild pigs and things like that. And they would roast them on the beach Mm -hmm. and the smoke from the from the uh, the, these fires of them roasting, uh, uh, you know, like I said, pigs and deer and things like that uh would would show up as kind of a signal and in fact they would sometimes set those as kind of lures for sh- uh, ships to come in and see kind of what's going on and that's when they would swarm and take over the ship but, interesting um, yeah
1: so it would actually attract other ships as opposed to serve as like a well, red I... flag that pirates <laughs> they, are <laughs> pirates are around
0: they, they got wise to it after a while i mean it's a it's it's always a risky proposition making contact but this is also that world that we kind of talked about where people are are obligated to display flags that are mm-hmm. properly you know denoting their their nationality and things like that yeah where there are kind of some rules in place and and a lot of times these ships felt somewhat comfortable uh, approaching until you know it was too close to really run away from the from the pirates from the buccaneers if you will mm-hmm. by 1667 morgan is harassing the island of cuba which is a major stronghold of of, uh, spanish power at this point in time but the thing is basically the way that these campaigns would go is the governor of jamaica would ask him for a a quota basically steal x amount of money from the spanish or x amount of treasure or so many ships he would have an amount that he had to steal Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and the thing is he didn't manage to steal enough from cuba and instead of going back and basically coming in under quota he went okay we'll get it somewhere else And this turned into this massive campaign across the entire Caribbean, trying to make up enough treasure to return back to Jamaica Mm
1: -hmm. and fill his
0: quota. And he'd get nearly there, and then some sort of disaster would strike. He would uh, have a ship go down or something like that. He would be back below quota again and would have to continue. Right. This continued for a number of years until uh, 1671 when he attacked Panama. The funny thing about him attacking Panama was that he is working under... Orders. He's he's working under a letter of Mark, which means that technically he's an agent of the British Empire, or English Empire, sorry, at this point in time. However, in 1670, so the year before, England had drawn up a treaty with Spain, specifically prohibiting English vessels from attacking Spanish colonies. This is a problem because (laughs) he's been at sea all this time and didn't know that this treaty had been put in place. Yeah. So after the attack on Panama, he was sent back to uh, to England for prosecution because this isn't even like regular privateering. This is like an act of war that he's committing mm-hmm. under a letter, letter of Mark, which is kind of a thing that they don't want you to do with a letter <laughs> of Mark. That's a, that's a bad way to go. However, he was able to prove that there was no possible way for him to have known about this treaty. And not only was he not prosecuted for this he was actually knighted in 1674 What? and made lieutenant governor of jamaica what i know and this is the kind of crazy thing that goes on especially earlier on in in piracy where these people who are clearly criminals and That's like crazy sacking cities and things like that and definitely definitely doing things that are illegal end up being governors of entire islands <laughs> because at least the illegal things that they're doing are against that country's enemy mm-hmm mm-hmm
1: Okay, that's an interesting justification.
0: It's an odd climate, and that's the exact climate <laughs> that, that is, is allowing piracy to flourish in the Caribbean at this point in time, right? Yeah. And he's a really good example of just how beneficial that can be, because he's a pirate. He's absolutely a pirate. He is committing piracy. Yeah. He is taking ships from people. He is holding people hostage. He's conducting sieges against sovereign cities. That's, that's not good stuff. That's normally no. the stuff that lands you in jail. And yet, it somehow manages to land him uh, in a position of, you know, significant political power. In 1683, so, uh, you know, about nine years later, there was a book published by a man named Alexandre X. Quilliman called The Buccaneers of America. Now, this man had been a former confidant of Morgan's, mm-hmm. hadn't been in touch for years and years and years. But... He uh, he wrote about Morgan a lot in his book because he kind of knew a little bit about him. I, I mean, the, the nature of their relationship is actually kind of hazy. Mm-hmm. It's possible that Exquemelin had been a barber surgeon for Morgan.
1: Interesting. So
0: not even like he had been on his crew necessarily, or yeah. you know, he had looked after you know yanking some teeth or something like that, and and had managed to gain his confidence at some point. Uh, this book painted Morgan as this bloodthirsty pirate that was, you know took pleasure in the suffering of others and was out only for personal gain and things like this. And at this point, he'd been in politics for a number of years. He'd (laughs) he'd almost gone straight, if you want to call it that. Yeah. He had found it easier to be, you know, Lieutenant Governor of Jamaica than to be a pirate. So that's what he did. Fair enough. And Morgan did sue him for libel over this book. However, it was enough of a tarnish on his name that he was actually removed from his post in politics. Hmm. And he would never actually serve again, dying about five years later. Um, did he
1: like go back into piracy or no
0: not really he seems to have made enough money from his life in politics (laughs) that he didn't really need to and he was also not terribly well that's another thing that we haven't much talked about in this but anyone who went to the caribbean was facing a whole host of potential diseases Mm -hmm. that uh you know people were never exposed to in Europe Mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk well maybe not enough talk but there's some talk about things like smallpox and leprosy and things like that going uh, to the new world but there were a number of new world diseases that attacked Europeans as well predominantly things like yellow fever
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and Morgan is kind of interesting in that he's one of the few pirates we're going to talk about that actually died of illness and not you know dying in combat or being executed right he died in 1688 of what they called dropsy um, mm-hmm. Dropsy is a uh, is an edema, so like a like okay, a swelling, swelling mm-hmm. um, probably and likely a pulmonary edema. But mm-hmm. now they think it might have been tuberculosis, which can cause pulmonary edemas. Yeah, and he was buried in Port Royal, which you'll remember. Four years later, sixteen ninety two, was basically destroyed by a massive earthquake, and his grave was lost at that point
2: in time. Oh. So
0: uh, Morgan was kind of in a way buried at sea eventually,
1: which is oh. kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I know
0: that's cute, but, like, he was a really terrible guy. He killed a lot of people.
1: It's not cute, but it's, like, that's, like, one thing that's so stereotypically, like, pirate, you know? Absolutely. Being buried at sea.
0: Completely. Let's move on to another one, because I've got a number of pirates I want to talk about. Awesome. And I'm not even hitting, like, all the good ones. We're just doing, like, a couple of quick, <laughs> like, top-of-the-line ones. Sweet. We're going to talk about Bartholomew Roberts next. That's also known as name. Black Bart, which is a much better name. Black Bart. I think we're going to stick with that one, probably. Cool. Born in 1682, so a lot later, you know, only six years before uh, um, Morgan died. I mean, Morgan was kind of the last of the pirates that we're going to talk about in that last Golden Age that we talked about at the end of last episode, mm-hmm. um, before everyone kind of moved out of the the Caribbean for a while. Black Bard is part of this new guard of, of pirates. He began serving on a slave ship, but... The ship was actually captured by pirates fairly early on, and he decided to just join up with them rather than face potentially being killed or or even, I mean, when you're working for a company that's running slave ships, generally they don't treat you that well if you're the victim of piracy. They mm-hmm. see it as, you know, you failing to protect their assets. Yeah. So he figured, ah, this works for me. I'm going to go into piracy instead. <laughs> and he quickly rose through the ranks just on... Barrett. He was a very cunning person, very intelligent, very quick to learn, and um, proved himself a capable navigator very quickly. And that's the kind of opportunity that you don't necessarily get, either in the Royal Navy or in a merchant navy. Yeah. Where a lot of the rank is based on uh, birth rather than merit. Mm-hmm. Again, one of the things that makes piracy so attractive to some of these uh, For sure. former Navy members. One of the earliest um, records that we have about him was... When his captain, a man named Howell Davis, failed to kidnap the governor of Principe, which is a Portuguese island. Mm-hmm. They had this whole plan where they were going to capture him. They were going to ransom him. They were going to make a whole lot of money and they were going to get away, you know, scot-free. It was going to be great. Completely blew up in his face. <laughs> they barely got away with their lives. Davis was, was uh, captured. And Black Bart was elected new captain of this pirate crew. His first act was to return to Principe much better prepared and sacked the entire island uh, in revenge for his former captain. Mm-hmm. He was not great for letting things go. <laughs> he was well known for keeping a grudge for a very long time. His, his flagship, called the Rover, was stolen by one of his sailors named Walter Kennedy uh, in 1719. Basically, he and a number of his crew were out on, they were, they were trying to capture another ship on one of the smaller ships from the, the fleet. Mm-hmm. This man, Kennedy, stole his flagship uh, and just made off with it, left them stranded on this little tiny uh, ship, which they Kennedy. renamed Fortune. Yeah. They, they renamed it the Fortune, and he's like, "That's I, I don't even care. I'm <laughs> Black Bart. I'm going to get back at this. I'm still going to be a great pirate. I don't need that giant ship to do that. Yeah. Still just as good. So he goes off in this little tiny sh- ship. It's It's what's known as a sloop. A sloop is like... Um it's it's got a single mast, it's got like just a couple of very simple sails. A sloop? Sloop. S L O O P. I know, it's it's an odd it's an odd name. They worked their way up from the sloop in 1719 to by 2 years later, he had captured a 52-gun French man-o'-war, which is a three-masted just gigantic warship. Mm. Um they were the, the these were the ships that everyone was afraid of in the Caribbean at this point in time. This was right the, the top-of-the-line military Navy vessels. So it didn't really take him that long to get back up. And, you know, he went from this sloop called the Fortune to taking this man-of-war two years later, which he renamed the Royal Fortune,
3: mm-hmm.
0: kind of in honor of, of where he had kind of had to start from the absolute bottom to get back up. Now, while he had still been sailing around on the sloop, there was, like, some word had gotten around about him. He had become a little bit notorious as a, as a pirate. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, he captured a lot of ships over his career. I mean, by the, by the time he was finished, he had captured uh, over 470 different ships. So he was very prolific as a as a pirate. And the governors of Barbados, which is British, and Martinique, which is French, had basically colluded to attack him specifically. <laughs> they had each sent out uh, a couple of flags. I mean, they, they were looking for pirates in general, but they had yeah. them in mind. Didn't manage to do it. And in response, Black Bart changed his pirate flag. Now, pi- pirate flags are, you know, we, we talk about like the Jolly Roger, like the skull and crossbones. Yeah. Right? This is in response to that whole you have to put up a flag and declare who you are before you attack thing. I mean, if you're a pirate, you don't necessarily represent a nation, especially if you're not a privateer. So it's a little bit disingenuous to put up the English flag or the French flag. Mm-hmm. And so pirates started making their own flags because they were only representing themselves. It's sort of this, this theme of freedom that we see kind of snaking, their, uh, snaking its way through the whole topic.
1: Take a and, selfie and print it on a flag and just, like, <laughs> fly it on your ship.
0: I mean, not quite, but like, <laughs> every every pirate would personalize their own flag.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And they
0: would almost always be black, although red was fairly common as well. And they would have, like, very evocative pr- uh, pictures on them. Black Bart's original flag had been uh, a picture of him, and beside him was a skeleton representing death, and the two of them were holding uh, an hourglass.
1: Oh, that's lovely.
0: Um, you know, <laughs> representing that both him and death were coming for you eventually.
1: Oh, so heartwarming!
0: <laughs> but after this whole Barbados and Martinique mission, he changed his flag to being a picture of him standing on top of two skulls, a foot on each one. <laughs> one of them marked Barbados, and one of them marked Martinique. <laughs> Say what you will; they have a lot of style. There's a lot of drama going on here. Yeah, that's it's
1: like a, flag 2.0. <laughs> it's
0: th- that's absolute dramatic flair, and I mean that's that's one thing that. Black Bart was known for I love it (laughs) he would I mean he was well known for before going to battle dressing in his finest clothes which was basically yeah um, a crimson waistcoat and breeches with you know white stockings up to the knee and black boots right on and uh he would wear a like this giant black hat with a huge red feather coming
1: out of it of course he did
0: of course he did so that whole like stereotype of like the really like flamboyant Mm
2: -hmm.
1: ship captain
0: absolutely coming from Black Bart he would wear a gigantic golden chain with a a huge diamond cross hanging off of it. <laughs> like, just just spectacular.
1: Oh, I love it.
0: He had a lot of success in the Caribbean, but by about 1720 or so, and we're going to talk about this a little later, it had really become fairly unfriendly towards pirates. There had been a lot of changes in the area, but piracy was really not tolerated the way that it used to be. hmm And he decided to move to raiding first uh, Newfoundland and then to the African coasts where he could kind of raid uh, slavers directly. Hmm. And was working there for some time until he ran into a number of Royal Navy ships in 1722. By this time, the Royal Navy had really become kind of the Royal Navy that we think of when
3: you kind mm-hmm. of hear
0: that, like the like the Royal Navy in the Age of Sail, where you think of like really imposing tall ships, the ship of the lines, right? Yeah. Um, and it had really come into its own in the past hundred years. They were not someone that you wanted to be messing around with. Mm-hmm. Black Bart still decided to uh, attack rather than flee. And there was a, a pitched battle between the two Royal Navy ships and, and Roberts's ships. And only three pirates were killed in this engagement, but Black Bart was one of them. Uh, he was hit in the neck by a round of grape shot.
2: Um,
0: grape shot is like w- what they would do when they were coming in uh, for an engagement is like, absolutely. They would open up with like a broadside of cannons where mm-hmm. they're shooting the the big, like 12 pound cannonballs through the side of the ship. Yeah. But, what they would sometimes do is load the top level of cannons with what's called grape shot, which is lead pellets the size of grapes, mm-hmm. and they would shove a whole bunch in there on top of the the gunpowder. Mm-hmm. So when it fired, it would fire all of these pellets in like a spray, which they would use to try and take out as many people as possible right. rather than trying to damage the ship. So he was hit in the throat and killed basically instantly by this. Mm. And his men, and I'm once again, like in his finest clothing, right? Like he's just looking... <laughs> fabulous while he's doing this <laughs> and the first thing that his men did when they saw that he had been hit was uh weigh him down with stones and throw him over the side to once again be buried at sea before the ship could be captured by the royal navy because at that point like they knew they were going to be captured so yeah. they wanted to get rid of him as quickly as possible yeah uh, they didn't want him to be made uh, a symbol
3: because mm-hmm.
0: that's usually what happened when pirates were were captured right they, yeah. were, they were made examples of most of his crew at that point were either sold into slavery, like there were 65 black men serving on his crew, and they were immediately sold into the slave trade. And then anyone who wasn't black was likely hanged. About 50 people were hanged. And then another 20 or 30 were signed on to the Royal African Company. By this point, the British had taken over the slave trade from the Spanish. Mm -hmm. And they had a company to look after the slave trade, the Royal African Company. Basically, what you could do for a punishment was indenture yourself to this company for a set number of years so that you had to work for them for that time to serve out your sentence rather than sitting in a jail cell. And honestly, at this point in time, you would almost rather be in a jail cell than necessarily working for this company. Yeah. Um, Never mind the moral implications of all of this. There were actually more sailors running the slave ships died on these crossings than the slaves in the holds. Which is terrifying because we all know how like horrific the co- the conditions are. That
1: is terrifying. In
0: those slave holds, it was just a really really rough life. The nutrition was awful. Scurvy was rampant, and they hadn't figured out yet what exactly cured it.
2: Mm. Um,
0: never mind the storms, the exposure, the like the like the yellow fever. There are so many things that make sailing life really really dangerous and really not glamorous. Yeah. Uh, that you know, rarely show up in the movies for some reason. I can't imagine why. (laughs) The
1: less glamorous side.
0: Yeah. I mean, Black Bart was kind of killed a little bit unceremoniously, but as far as kind of contributing to like this mythology of of being a pirate, he was so ruthless, so self-driven. He created a, a pirate code that's one of the most like iconic pirate codes, a kind of um, it's one of the best known ones. Of course, there were lots and lots of them, but the the pirate code that we talked about last time was actually mainly based off of the one that Black Bart put into place hmm. and basically made everyone that hadn't abandoned him under Kennedy, made all of them sign before continuing on on uh, the fortune. So a lot of the very, like, there, there's a lot about him that's very um, iconic about yeah. being, uh, uh, being a pirate. Next up, we could talk about, uh, I think Blackbeard's probably a really good one to mm-hmm. go with next his real name was edward teach born again in 1680 mm-hmm. and is quite possibly the best known pirate in terms of just like name recognition yeah and is once again kind of iconic for a few of the things that he brings to the table as a pirate just in terms of his own personal style which is really interesting because it, it, it some of these larger than life figures really end up playing like a a, a huge part in our kind of uh, archetype about caribbean pirates at this point
2: mm-hmm.
0: he might have been a privateer during the war of spanish succession which again we'll talk a little bit more about later
2: mm-hmm.
0: the uh the north american theater of the war was known as uh queen anne's war gets into a little bit of complicated stuff but mainly it's because that's the the english queen during uh part of the war and uh england focused fairly heavily on north america right uh, you know it uh it, in the beginning of the 18th century, clearly North America is the place that yeah. uh, Britain wants to focus a lot of its attention in terms of um, military and economic support. And mm-hmm. the War of Spanish, Spanish Succession gave them a lot of uh, opportunity to do that. So after that war ended in 1713, a lot of sailors were basically discharged from the uh, from the Navy because they just didn't need them anymore mm-hmm. uh, and moved over to uh, the Caribbean to find work. Mm-hmm. Blackbeard was likely one of these and very quickly found work with various pirate crews. He was notable for how very tall and thin he was, but also like actually for his massive bushy black beard, which Mm -hmm. is a very literal nickname, but hey, it works. Yeah. And he would absolutely play that up for dramatic effect. He would take and he would braid his beard, Mm -hmm. put like little ribbons in it so that it would stick out more and look more imposing. Yeah. I mean, this is also a guy who would apparently, when going into battle, he would take long strings of cannon fuse, which is like just a really slow burning thread, basically. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And he would stick it in his hair underneath his hat so that they would hang down on either side of his face, and it would just be burning slowly beside his face. And it would, it would cast his face into shadow, which would make him look that much more uh, terrifying.
1: That's amazing.
0: <laughs> he would go into battle with uh, three bandoliers of pistol- pistols across his chest,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, with his with his sword ready to go. And apparently it was just like absolutely terrifying. I believe it. He had basically managed to take command himself um, by capturing a French merchant ship and buying enough guns to make it very formidable. Like he put 40 guns on this previously non-military ship (laughs) and named it the Queen Anne's Revenge, which is one of the reasons that people think he was almost certainly involved in that war. Right. But again, pirates kind of often had flair for the dramatic, especially somebody who goes to this kind of length to terrorize his victims.
1: I can see that. Like that's not a dude you want to steal milk money from.
0: Exactly. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Interestingly enough, he doesn't seem to have been necessarily overly violent. Like, he wasn't outstandingly violent for a pirate. Not to say that he wasn't, you know, he was no pacifist. Mm -hmm. But there are really no records of him needlessly, for example, slaughtering a crew after the crew had surrendered. Or, you know, things like that that are really kind of what ends up putting some of these people over the edge from, you know, kind of... Displaced former servicemen into just, like, horrible, horrible people <laughs> territory. Yeah. But, yeah, in general, it seems like a lot of that theater that he was putting together was almost more to convince people to surrender to him before the battle had even started.
2: hmm
0: Which one could argue is practically terrorism, but, you know, it was more for that than it was necessarily to give him an advantage in, in battle. I mean, really, he was looking to avoid a fight, which is kind of typical for a lot of pirates. We talked about that a lot last time, where you know, yeah. they don't really want to kill everybody. They just want the ship and the stuff on the ship. And yeah. maybe if you're important, ran- ransom you back to your, to your people, but alive or else you don't get the ransom. Yeah. So, you know, as, as much as he had a reputation for being uh, basically the devil incarnate, that really wasn't his style. It mm-hmm. was all about intimidation. He was also apparently a very, very good leader. Sometimes in terms of motivating with carrots, in terms of giving really, really good incentives to his crews for taking large treasures, but also in terms of the stick, in terms of doing things like sailing up to ships in very small boats and then setting those boats on fire (laughs) so that there was no option of retreat. Yeah. So they had to take the ship that they were going for. Yeah. What can I say? He knew how to motivate a crew.
1: Yeah, no kidding.
0: (laughs) As much as Queen Anne's Revenge was like really iconic in terms of uh blackbeard's ship and a lot of times when you see him portrayed in fiction his ship is always the queen anne's revenge he actually didn't keep it for all that long his pirating career basically went for five years and that's another thing you'll notice about a lot of these pirates their careers are very short yeah this is not an old man's game yeah even though he pirated for about five years maybe longer it's kind of hard to say uh he really only had queen anne's revenge for about a year and he kind of that that ship was was sunk and he kept moving up to uh various other ships Mm -hmm. um he wasn't just in the caribbean he also moved up the eastern seaboard attacking the uh, the british colonies that would eventually become the united states and his presence combined with sort of the the time frame that he's active namely the the time just after the the spanish war of succession when people are kind of cracking down on piracy meant that his his presence there was taken very very seriously mm-hmm. by the royal navy they saw him as enough of a threat to basically put out wanted posters for him specifically hmm didn't help that he had this reputation as being sort of this larger-than-life figure, but he also had the the track record to back that up. He had stolen a lot of ships and a lot of treasure. He was a very wealthy man. (laughs) So eventually the the colony of Virginia was sort of the one that that broke and specifically sent a few ships after Blackbeard personally. I mean, he had been up and down the seaboard for for years to, you know, we could get into every single time that he had attacked some settlement or another Mm -hmm. all the various alliances that he had with other pirates that we've talked about including black bart but eventually they sent uh, a man named uh lieutenant robert maynard of the hms pearl based out of uh, the colony of virginia Mm -hmm. they gave him command of several ships specifically to hunt down teach sorry blackbeard there was this thing going on by the 1710s uh known as pirate hunters where mm-hmm. basically the piracy problem had become so bad that certain people found it more lucrative to collect on bounties that were put out against pirates than to actually commit piracy themselves. Right. So there were kind of counter pirates in the area yeah. that once someone's committed piracy and there's sufficient proof of it, and being as notorious as Blackbeard is definitely sufficient proof, um, private individuals could take you in for a bounty on your head and be paid for that rather than, you know, resorting to attacking somewhat defenseless merchant vessels for whatever happens to be on board Mm -hmm. and so pirate hunters became very prevalent
1: that's interesting
0: now maynard doesn't count as a pirate hunter per se because he's not a private individual he's actually commissioned by the royal navy but he's essentially acting in the same role and
1: professional pirate hunter
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely And he consulted with other pirate hunters on, like, what do we know about this guy? Like, what, you know, what are his patterns? Where does he like to go? Where can I find him? How does he act when I get there? Kind of, like, things (laughs) like that. He's trying to figure out exactly what's going on with Blackbeard and how best to take him out. Yeah. And he discovered that Blackbeard generally liked camping off of this one specific island. And it it, it was really calm water. There was lots of fresh water in the area, lots of hunting in the area to Mm -hmm. replenish supplies. So Maynard goes hunting for Teach at that uh, at that same place. And he actually manages to find him. He got really lucky. Hmm. He happened to be at anchor there. And what follows is just this massive battle between uh, Blackbeard's fleet and uh, these Royal Navy ships.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, there's there were sandbars in the area that Blackbeard knew quite well, but, you know, the, the Royal Navy didn't. One of the Royal Navy ships seems to have run aground on a sandbar, mm-hmm. but then cannon fire took out the, uh, the jib, which is a sail that allows for fine maneuvering yeah. on uh, on Blackbeard's uh, ship. And he ran aground as well. They both kind of worked at kind of trying to get their ships dug out of this sandbar for a while, while still trading fire fairly far away. And eventually both got, got going uh, again, although one of the British ships, they, they didn't manage to get floated. And basically got in close enough that... Blackbeard's ship latched onto the British one using grappling hooks and they, they pull them in close beside each other. They pull them close enough so that uh, a broadside, like firing the cannons, damage uh, the firing ship as much as the one that was being hit and it would allow uh, pirates to cross over to the other ship. This was really common for, for taking ships, hmm. but he was so desperate that it was like, okay, well, let's take this down right to hand to hand. Yeah, Blackbeard actually spotted Maynard and was coming after him Uh, With his sword drawn in one hand and a pistol in the other, when one of Maynard's men managed to slash him across the throat and kill him, and as much as I'd love to have this be about a duel between
1: the two, yeah,
0: history doesn't go that way. So close. Sometimes really frustrating. I mean, with with Black Bart, we you know we talked about that uh, you know Kennedy stealing his ship. Man, would I have liked to seen the showdown between those two? Now, honestly, have him hunt him down for a good revenge story? Come on. Who's writing this stuff? Honestly. Anyways, Blackbeard's killed, and you know, once again, you know he's got the he's got the beard and the braids, and he's got the 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 matches or the, the fuses uh, hanging out of his hair, burning, and mm-hmm. absolutely terrifying. And they did an op- autopsy of his body after the fighting was finished, and they discovered he had been shot at least five times in that engagement, and and cut more than twenty oh with cutlasses God. before he was killed. <laughs> So we went down hard. Wow. Needless to say, Blackbeard's fleet was, you know, demolished in yeah. this in this fighting. And Blackbeard was so reviled by the Royal Navy that the way that Maynard decided to deal with his body was to actually behead him, throw mm-hmm. the body into the sea, and he sailed back to Virginia with his head tied from the postprit, the the prow of the the ship hanging off so that everyone could see that blackbeard had been killed Mm -hmm. because no one thought that he could be he had this sort of mythical status about him right and everyone knew these these legends about this pirate he'd been active for years and years which was a very long time for a pirate at this point in time yeah Uh, he had this reputation for ferocity for not allowing his men to ever retreat for always taking his prize and a lot of it is kind of trumped up it's hype right like it's about the the the, he was
1: hiding behind a bit of a smoke screen if you will I guess you could say that with the fiery hair
0: it's all about the production value <laughs> right yeah who doesn't love some pyrotechnics yeah but as much as that reputation had helped him out as much as his actual ferocity had helped him out uh, he he was eventually hunted down and killed and I, I mean we don't like we don't know a ton about the guy really I mean it seems that he could read and write quite well actually quite like, very well, not just functionally literate. So hmm. we think that he might have maybe been from a better family at some point, but we have no idea.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the
0: problems at this point in time, uh, figuring out who kind of comes from where and who belongs to who, is that, number one, everyone's using pseudonyms for everything.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, number two, his last name, you know, these days is fairly well established as Teach. Like, that's the common rendition of it. Mm-hmm. But it's also been written in places as Thatch and mm-hmm. Touch and various different spellings of all of these different pronunciations, oh, yeah. you know, add an E on there somewhere, you know, like it's, it, it gets very muddled. And that's just kind of a function of the English language that it's not really set in stone how to pronounce things. And people cared a lot less about the correct spelling of things at this point in history, that yeah. even for official records, things like last names could be very, you know, mutable.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But, you know, with the killing of Blackbeard, it was sort of, you know, we're we're jumping around a little bit in the timelines to focus on individuals rather than uh what year things happen because yeah. let's face it, that's the that's the easiest way to go about this stuff. <laughs> Blackbeard was one of the first great, you know, mythical pirates to be killed in sort of this crackdown on on piracy. Mm-hmm. And for for him to go down was was such a, a shock to the pirate world at this point in time that you know, for a lot of them, this, this really looked like the beginning of the uh, end of the age of piracy. And they were kind of right.
1: Yeah, that's um, understandable.
0: So yeah, he's, he's again, really interesting as sort of this very prototypical pirate, the whole, you know, swinging across to other ships on ropes and the, yeah. you, know, the you know, reports of him just like eating gunpowder, which probably weren't true, or, you know, like all <laughs> this weird stuff that like, it, it, it ends up being like this larger than life myth, right? So yeah. We're not entirely sure, but his Jolly Roger, his black flag, may have actually been the skull and crossbones that we think of when we think pirate flag. Right. Again, he sailed under a number of flags, mm-hmm. but it's kind of interesting that the one that we think of as, like, the pirate flag uh, was likely used by him. That's cool. Especially when you look at the variation in Jolly Rogers. Like, they're they're just fantastic. We, we talked about black Bart's. There are other ones with, like, you know, often the the pirate captain will be on the flag Mm -hmm. or a skeleton representing death will be on the flag and Mm -hmm. it'll have some sort of weird symbolism where you'll have like a skeleton with a trident stabbing a heart and they they get very complicated. (laughs) But his was like the pirate one. His was the one that we think of uh, when we think pirates. His whole style as a a former uh, member of the Royal Navy and the whole tricorn hat thing and all of that. That's very, very prototypical pirate. And he was considered that way actually during his lifetime, not even just afterwards romanticized. But that <laughs> was him during life as well, which is really interesting. That's cool. Um, I have one more like really solid pirate story about individuals, but I think now is probably a good time to take a quick break. All right. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Calico Jack. Sounds good. <laughs> Okay, we're back on hi 101 here with Yumika Mika Hi. And we've been talking about some good p- pirate stories so far. We have. I saved, I think, the best one for last. Yay. And this is about a pirate named uh, John Rackham, who is known as Calico Jack. And he's got a pretty, pretty solid story going here. Right on. Born in 1682. Just, again, another one of these English kids, don't, don't really know where he came from served in the in the uh, navy for a while ended up in the caribbean looking for work and decided the piracy was the best option for him
1: do what you got to do
0: pretty much served under a man named charles vane by about 1718 and i mean note this is the this is the year that blackbeard is killed already so i mean pirates okay. piracy has been going uh quite strongly by this point in time yeah and he actually serves as quartermaster which you know uh is the person who steers the ship and is basically second in command. Mm -hmm. He's one of the few people who actually has the ability to countermand a captain's orders. Right. So quite a bit of power on this ship. And Charles Vane was quite well known as a pirate in the region at that point in time.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Had had been quite devastating. But in 1718, Vane comes across a French man of war. So again, one of these huge three-masted, you know, there's three levels of cannons giant warships
2: Mm
0: -hmm. at least twice as big as the ship that they're on and he decides that they better retreat he feels like they can't really take this ship they shouldn't even bother trying right not worth the effort and calico jack quietly disagreed he said listen that ship is going to have so much treasure on it it's going to be absolutely worth taking and besides we're on a little sloop right now if we can take that war, we'll be unstoppable. That's a good point. Most of the crew agreed with Rackham. However, one of, the th- one of the few places where the Quartermaster can't override the Captain's orders is during combat. Which just makes sense. You can't have yeah. that level of uh, disorder during battle. You need someone clearly giving the orders. Mm-hmm. And because they were in a combat position... Despite the fact that only 15 members of the crew agreed with Vane, they retreated. So the first thing that happened as soon as they got to safety was that the crew called for a vote of cowardice. Mm. Which is basically everyone on the ship sitting down and going, hey, is our captain like a real bad captain? (laughs) Like, should he have taken that ship? Yeah. And the final vote was 75 against Vane and 15 for.
1: Hmm. Which
0: is pretty decisive. Mm -hmm. So clearly the vast majority of the crew support Calico Jack. Yeah. And they gave Vane one of the smaller ships from the fleet, some supplies, put him and the 15 guys on that ship, and told them that they never wanted to see them again. Which is fairly generous when you think about it.
1: Yeah, for a pirate, that's that's downright nice. That was
0: full-blown mutiny. That's that generally doesn't go that well for the captain that's being mutinied against. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's that's relatively reasonable. As part of this same vote, Rackham is made the new captain, and that's how he became Empire Captain. His Jolly Roger was also one of the more famous designs. His was the skull with the two crossed sabers underneath Mm -hmm. rather than the bones. So again extremely iconic yeah especially again i i really encourage people to go take a look at some of these jolly roger designs because they are whack like they're so (laughs) they're so weird they've got like you know how like political cartoons from like right around the american revolution are like these odd cartoons where like a lot of stuff's like labeled and like it's got some sort of symbolism going on Mm -hmm. but it's been just long enough that it's kind of not super clear yeah it kind of reminds me a lot of that in terms of just, like, art style and symbolism and things like that. Right. Clearly, they're trying to make a very obvious impression. Like statement, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a definite message behind these, these flags. I don't always necessarily don't know it. what they are. <laughs> I need someone to explain them to me. But they are, they are very, very cool. But, again, most of them don't really look like what you would think of as a pirate flag.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Calico Jacks absolutely does. He spent a a little bit of time pirating around, but actually not that that long because there was a governor uh, in the Bahamas named uh, Woods Rogers, which is a very British sounding name. Yeah. And Rogers was a desperate man because he had been tasked with ending piracy in the Caribbean. Oh, God. And he came up with a really interesting idea. Namely he decided that he was going to offer amnesty to every pirate in the Caribbean. All they had to do was come to the Bahamas, turn themselves in, register themselves as former pirates, turn in all weapons and their vessels. And from that point on, they could no longer meet in groups of, or sorry, travel together in groups of larger than three. Hmm. Because they figured that was probably small enough that they couldn't really you know, take any vessels or anything like that. They were probably safe.
1: So wait, okay. So let's say like the super popular pirate wants to have a birthday party. Mm-hmm. And he's like, damn it, I can only invite, what, like two people?
0: I think the specific line is travel together. So I think they could probably get together. Have
1: birthday parties.
0: Yeah, sure. <laughs> that works. Okay. <laughs> I, I, you know what, the, the terms of this were a little bit <laughs> unclear to me. I think the fact that, they would all be in one place would be okay. Right. I mean, you know for sure that, like, the militia is going to be watching that party. Yeah. And there aren't supposed to be any guns there. Yeah. So there's probably not a lot they can get up to other than... Because, like, there could be a lot of
1: hurt feelings is all I'm saying.
0: Sing songs and you know. whatever else pirates do when they hang out, I guess. Yeah. No, no, no. I think I think they could probably get together. But, I mean, even even if it got right down to, like, right of assembly stuff... What he's doing is offering amnesty to thousands of men who, before that offer, are absolutely 100% looking at being hanged if they're yeah. ever caught. Yeah. And in terms of like what concessions you need to make to not be up for capital punishment by the local government, it's kind of an attractive
1: offer. Yeah. It's a pretty sweet deal.
0: Especially because at this point in time, we're looking at about five years have gone by since uh, the War of Spanish, Spanish Succession has ended. Where a bunch of guys have gone, tried their hand at piracy. I mean, yeah, for some of them, it's gone really well. I bet for a lot of them, they didn't have that good a time. Mm -hmm. Probably regret their decisions. Yeah. And if you aren't one of the most popular pirates in the Caribbean, that might look really good to you. Yeah. And it's a good way of wiping out, even if not everyone takes it, a significant percentage of the population who are engaging in piracy.
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So, Calico Jack looks at this offer And by the way, this had been made while Blackbeard was still alive and he had considered it and decided not to take the offer. He -hmm. thought it was a trap. He thought that they were going to be rounded up and killed, Uh. that it was a uh, that it was a ruse. And um, but but I mean, Calico Jack looks at this and he goes, well, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Maybe we should uh, try settling down because he's seen all these other pirates go through and make it a couple years max before they're caught and killed. Yeah. Besides, he's met someone.
1: Aww.
0: Her name is Anne Bonnie. Small wrinkle, she is married to a sailor. Uh-oh. But Calico Jack isn't the kind of guy to let a little detail like that get in the way of love.
1: <laughs> of course not.
0: And I mean, Anne Bonnie had had a reputation for being a bit of a, a firebrand. <laughs> I mean, there there are tales that, you know, she burned her father's plantation down when she was 13, which, I mean, are possibly apocryphal like we don't know necessarily whether or not she's a
1: feisty one
0: yeah exactly but you know had taken to hanging out in basically pirate dive bars when her when her husband was away on his very legitimate merchant business (laughs) so yeah i I mean it's it's kind of the equivalent of someone going off military base today to hang out at a biker bar
1: all right all right
0: she was not you know a delicate flower that one (laughs) And Calico Jack was all about her. He thought she was great. The timeline on when exactly they met, I'm finding really unclear. I'm finding like a lot of varying details, especially because a lot of this stuff happens in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. But it seems that even before he was made captain, he may have met her and she may have run away with him.
2: Mm. Uh,
0: And they may have had a child together. But basically, he dropped her off at Cuba to have this child. And then nothing else is ever said about this kid, so we're not sure if he was sent back to his family in Mm. the Bahamas, if Mm -hmm. he or she, actually actually have no idea, was just abandoned uh, to an orphanage, if the child didn't survive childbirth, which is very uh, possible at this point in time. Yeah. We're not sure. But the fact remains that when Calico Jack took amnesty, he did kind of have Anne Bonnie in mind Ooh. to some extent. And tried uh, doing what's known as buying a divorce, mm-hmm. which is basically paying her husband to divorce her so that he could marry her. <laughs> uh, now, number one, he was still mad about the fact that Calico Jack had stolen her, quote unquote, from him. Yeah. It sounds like it was less of a stealing and more of a very... Very willing, very enthusiastic relationship. <laughs> they seem made for each other, which yeah. is fantastic. But he was still mad about that for some reason. I can't imagine I why. I can't imagine why. And wouldn't agree to it. Besides, it sounds like Anne Bonnie didn't really want to be purchased, necessarily. That was not her style.
1: Yeah, it doesn't really sound like it would be her style. I don't blame her.
0: Not at all. And so they were trying to figure out what to do. And they settled on, well... <laughs> I guess we could steal a ship together and go back into pirating. (laughs) So Jack had had amnesty for, I think it works out to a couple months in the timeline, (laughs) before Anne Bonny dressed up as a man, helped him steal a ship, put together a new crew, and went back to sea pirating. Yes! Which is amazing.
1: That's the best. Why is there not, like, a documentary, like...
0: Oh, there are so many. Really? Yes. Okay, excellent. Uh, Anne Bonny is one of the most popular characters in any historical or vaguely historically based retellings of this era
1: fantastic
0: and it's kind of interesting because she ends up really overshadowing calico jack Mm -hmm. now that may be because she's one of the very few uh female pirates um, which is a very intriguing story to people obviously yeah but jack is really interesting in his own right he was a very effective pirate and really kind of representative of what it was like to be a pirate in this era because this whole decision on whether or not to take amnesty was an event that really rocked the world of Caribbean piracy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Blackbeard's concern that it was a trap is a very reasonable one. Oh, yeah. That seems like the kind of nonsense that the Royal Navy would absolutely pull to kill all the pirates. Yeah. And amnesty on this level was completely unprecedented. Why wouldn't you be suspicious of that? Yeah. And then the other side of that is how do you just kind of settle into civilian life after that? Because, yeah, it's safer and, yeah, it's legal, but it doesn't make you as much money as piracy.
1: I can just imagine it like organized like a group therapy thing was like, hi, my name is Jack and I used to be a pirate. And everyone's like, hi, Jack.
0: <laughs> That's a great image. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> been 73 days (laughs) since i boarded and took a vessel (laughs) you know i think about it every day
1: how does that make you feel the
0: smell of the (laughs) gunpowder um anyways one of the people that they took onto the ship as part of their new pirate crew was uh another woman actually named mary reed mary reed's also a very interesting character and again one of the most prominently featured in historical fiction because not only do we have very, two very famous female pirates but they're serving together on the same ship yeah which is a very attractive story setup mary reed was interesting in that she was born illegitimately in england around 1690 or so we're not quite sure and she had an older half-brother named mark who her mother, after, like, her her father had, had passed away. And her mother was using this, this half-brother named Mark to basically get a uh, monthly payment out mm-hmm. of the boy's grandmother. Okay. But Mark died. And she wanted to keep the payments coming. So she dressed Mary up as a boy. Oh. And ever since she was, like, a very young teen, had her basically acting out a life as Mark, Mark Reed. Mm -hmm. And this fooled the, uh, well, his grandmother. Uh, This woman wasn't Mary's grandmother, but it was her half-brothers. And so she kept the payments coming. Uh, It it worked. And to keep up the, you know, to keep up the uh, the appearances, Mary eventually found work as an apprentice around town, eventually apprenticed on board a ship, the entire time dressing as a boy, uh, apparently passing, Mm-hmm. Which I always find really interesting in these stories how even on such um small quarters for such long periods of time, yeah, women are able to pass as men for that long.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I
0: don't I don't understand how it works.
1: Mm-hmm. You'd
0: think someone would figure it out relatively quickly. But you'd think I guess not. <laughs> She kept up this whole ruse, served on board these ships for a while, eventually joined the British military, <laughs> where she served, still passing as a man, uh, for a number of years until uh, falling in love with a Flemish soldier, Ooh. who she had to kind of out herself as a woman and kind of hope for the best. And he he did actually fall in love with her as well. They, uh, they married, they settled in the Netherlands, and uh, very soon after, he ended up dying. So oh. she decided, well, there's nothing left for me here, resumed dressing as a man, and again, went to the Caribbean looking for work. Wow. Served on board a a slave ship for a while, and the slave ship was boarded by Calico Jack and Anne Bonny, and she decided to join the crew. Mm -hmm. There's an apocryphal tale of how Mary Reed and Anne Bonny realized that each other were women, which was that supposedly, according to the story, which I honestly don't believe is true and most scholars say likely isn't true but it's a good story anyway so we're gonna tell it <laughs> apparently ann bonnie kind of had a thing for male mary reed mm-hmm. to the point that she eventually went to mary reed and said listen i'm a lady <laughs> you think we can make this work and mary reed went actually i'm a lady too and i thought you were really good looking too and they're like oh okay cool (laughs) and then calico jack had figured out that they were spending some time together Mm -hmm. thought that mary reed was still a man thought that there was something happening here which to his credit there could have been if things had gone differently yeah and so the two of and so mary reed was forced to reveal herself to calico jack to show that nothing was going on yeah that's likely not true it sounds like for the most part they dressed as women unless they were either going into port or expected a fight or something to that extent and the crew was just kind of cool with it Mm -hmm. Uh, mostly because one of them was with the captain yeah that kind of makes it a little bit different also they were both like super hardcore pirates they fought with them they took ships with them they drank with them they had no trouble fitting in with the rest of the crew they pulled their weight there was nothing about their conduct on that ship that was uh, a detriment to the, to the operation. Right. Which is really, really cool. Yeah. There is maybe some evidence that there was something between the two of them romantically. But again, it's a lot of conjecture, a lot of speculation. Mm-hmm. When you get into stuff like this, the, the the tales grow larger than life very quickly. So yeah. who knows? It's possible. Hard to say. Uh, we'll never really know for sure. In 1720, so again, like only a year after they've taken up piracy again, one of these pirate hunters that we talked about, Jonathan Barnett, comes across Calico Jack's ship. It's at anchor. There's another ship beside it. They ran into a small ship full of pirates and they basically decided to have a party. And when Barnett came on the ship, all of them were either so scared or so drunk Mm -hmm. that they refused to come up out of the hole to fight. (laughs) except for Mary Reed and Anne Bonny, who were on deck, swords and pistols drawn. Apparently, one of them was so angry that the rest of the crew wouldn't come up to defend the ship that she shot down into the hold, killing one of them, basically (laughs) saying, what are you guys doing? Get up here right now. We're being boarded. And they fought viciously against these pirate hunters, but there was only two of them. What are you going to do? Oh... So they were captured and they were taken back. And as much as the relationship between Bonnie and Calico Jack was like kind of great. Yeah. That whole ending to it didn't really go so well for Bonnie. She was not happy about it at all. In fact, apparently her last words to Rackham before he was hanged for piracy uh, were, had you fought like a man, you need not have been hanged like a dog.
2: Oh, burn. (laughs)
0: reed and bonnie were also brought before the judge to be sentenced for piracy obviously mm-hmm. and while rackham was hanged in november 1720 so basically right after he was captured reed and bonnie both did something really interesting which in english law is known as pleading the belly when the judge said do you have anything to say for yourselves they both said yep we're both pregnant oh. <laughs> and he went oh shoot because you can't hang a pregnant woman under English law at this point in time. Instead, their death sentence is commuted until after the birth of the child. So this at least gave them some extra time. I'm not sure exactly (laughs) to do what with. Mm -hmm. And at least... See, the the, the strange thing about this is that we're not sure whether either of them were pregnant, let alone both of them. Mm -hmm. It may have been a ploy because Reed ended up dying in prison Of a violent fever. Now, we're not entirely sure if this was complications of childbirth Mm -hmm. or if she died of something before giving birth. And that's the reason we have no record of a child was that she was buried before she'd given birth. Mm -hmm. There's no, like, there's no burial plot that would match up to Mary Reed's child. So it wouldn't make sense that the child was stillborn. However, possibly she was pregnant, gave birth, died as a a complication of childbirth, and the child was put in an orphanage. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: We're not... Sure. Bonnie, and Bonnie is an even more complicated story in that we have no idea what happened to her at all. Hmm. There's no record of execution. There's no record of release.
1: What? So she just like disappeared.:
0: Basically. It's 17:20. Things slip through the cracks. Records are not always the best. Yeah. However, this was a very high-profile case because not only was one of the most notorious pirates of the time captured. Calico Jack, mm-hmm. but it turned out that two of his crew members were women passing as men. Mm-hmm. This made all the papers such a good story. Yeah. Sold so many. <laughs> um people were following it very closely. So for there not to be any records whatsoever is kind of weird. It is. Some of the options that have been thrown around for what exactly happened to Anne Bonnie are possibly she was ransomed by her father. Maybe she was ransomed by her husband. And returned to him. Maybe she was ransomed by someone or escaped somehow and went back to pirating under a new identity, Mm -hmm. once again passing as a man. The most likely scenario at this point in time, given what we know about her, is that her father ransomed her and then married her off to someone uh, in virginia like get her right. as far away from the caribbean as possible yeah uh, it would have helped his business prospects in some way and in this story she lived until she were she was in her 80s and had as many as eight children but hmm. was all under a new identity completely under wraps but at the end of the day we don't actually know what happened to her which yeah. is really really intriguing yeah and that's the story of calico jack rackham and bonnie and mary reed
1: That's awesome. It's a
0: pretty good one.
1: That's so crazy. I love it.
0: A lot of the things that we've talked about kind of need to be tied up because we've got some loose ends about how exactly this age of piracy ended. So let's kind of zoom back out to what's going on in the world around us in terms of allowing piracy to happen, encouraging piracy, discouraging piracy, all of that. I've referenced a couple of times here the uh, Spanish War of Succession. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot last time about how The Bourbons in France and Habsburgs in Spain were pretty much mortal enemies. Yeah. Like, across generations, these two houses were at war. The king of Spain, Habsburg, had died without any heirs. Everyone knew this was coming. Everyone knew that he was getting real old and real sick and had no heirs. And it was a big problem as to what to do about it when he did actually die because the Habsburgs in the Holy Roman Empire in Austria wanted to put another branch of the family onto the throne. They figured that was the closest family. That kind of keeps the balance of power that they've had for the past very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. The French didn't want another Habsburg on on the throne. The British weren't really happy with either version of that, but would prefer a Habsburg over a bourbon just because they knew that they had been doing fairly well in controlling the Habsburgs so far and didn't want to see France gain more power by potentially combining itself with Spain. Yeah, Because really the the danger of putting a member of the Bourbon family on the Spanish throne is that if the king of France manages to put, say, a grandson on the throne Mm -hmm. and he's in line for succession to the French crown as well, Mm -hmm. potentially down the line one person could be king of both france and spain at which point you might as well just make him one country yeah and at that point you're uniting two of the strongest powers in europe which is gonna throw off the balance of power a little bit Mm -hmm. and if you're the king of spain or if you're king of france sounds great to everyone else not so much
1: not so great
0: there's a giant war over this whole thing which is you know to be expected, really, given mm-hmm. the circumstances.
1: Not surprised to hear that.
0: And really the way that all of this shakes out, I'm summarizing a very long, very bloody, very complicated war here. <laughs> but the one sentence version of it is uh, Bourbon is put on the throne. However, that member of the Bourbon family signs away all future claims for himself and his entire line on the French throne. So now there's a Bourbon in France and a Bourbon in Spain, but there's no way of the two countries uniting. Okay. That's the compromise that sort of comes out of all of this. And this is known as the Treaty of Utrecht. And this comes in 1713. That's a year we've heard a bunch of times recently, because that's the year that all of this fighting ends. The privateer branch of the Royal Navy is completely disbanded. All of these men with lots of naval experience have nothing else to do and kind of go, well, let's try the Caribbean for some work. It created this massive influx of pirates into the region. I see. Blackbeard being one of them. There had been... A fairly long period of time there, starting in about 1700, where we had talked about really piracy in the Caribbean no longer being that profitable, right? Which is when everyone kind of went to the Indian Ocean to try finding more profitable ventures there,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: kind of attacking the East India Company. Yeah. This Treaty of 1713 came around the same time as another major change came in the Caribbean, namely that one of the other terms of the Treaty of Utrecht, one of the smaller terms, was that Spain... Signed over the rights to the slave trade to the British. It's called the Asiento. And it's the contract to provide African slaves to all of the Caribbean colonies, right. well, all the American colonies. This was basically a concession given to the British over them not getting their way in who got the throne.
2: Mm-hmm
0: they were worried that this was making Spain a little too powerful, and they were traditionally enemies. Remember the uh, Spanish Armada and all of that, right? Yeah. They didn't love the idea of their biggest enemy, France, having control over one of their more traditional largest enemies, Spain, and one of their largest um, economic rivals. So as a concession, Spain gave up the, the slave trade to the English. That was really the start of what's known as the triangle slave trade. Which is this economic system where all three lines of the triangle make Britain money. Right. There are goods such as copper and iron and gunpowder that are shipped from, Brit- at this point, Britain to Africa,
2: mm-hmm.
0: traded for slaves, which are more valuable than the things they just sent to Africa. Yeah. The slaves are taken to generally the Caribbean uh, in exchange for... The cash crops that are being produced there, mostly Mm -hmm. sugar and tobacco, which are more valuable than the slaves. And the sugar and tobacco are taken back to Britain, generating more value uh, and basically traded in for even more, you know, goods to be traded for, more slaves to be traded for more sugar. It keeps going and going and going. And every leg of the journey, they're carrying something very valuable. Yeah. Which is a great place to be if you're a pirate. (laughs) To be
1: a pirate, yeah. Let's
0: take out all of that valuable stuff. Let's keep it for ourselves. Life is good. So all of a sudden, the Caribbean is way more valuable for piracy again, and you've got a lot of disenfranchised and unemployed young men who have a lot of skills in naval combat. (laughs) How did they not see this coming?
1: Yeah, it's like a perfect kind of scenario for them.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of a perfect storm. However, the Treaty of Utrecht also ends conflict between France and Spain because now both of them are bourbon. which means that France doesn't have that motivation to attack every single Spanish vessel in the Caribbean that they used to. Mm
2: -hmm. In
0: fact, they're downright friendly now. Yeah. Britain and France aren't that friendly anymore, but both of them are fairly strong in the region. And Britain is so content with its economic position that Mm -hmm. it's not too concerned about what either Spain or France are doing economically in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So they're willing to let things be. Besides, the Royal Navy, as we talked about, is now that force to be reckoned with that we think of in like the classic Age of Sail. Yeah. And they're doing what the Spanish could never really do, which is put enough very formidable ships in the Caribbean and in the Atlantic in general to actually exert some measure of control over the region. This idea of no peace beyond the line is basically gone at this point because the British can actually impose peace, Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting situation. Yeah. That's brand new in that that region. The other thing that the, the British do is they change the definition of or rather the classification of piracy as a crime. Okay. Before the early 18th century, basically the only risk of being a pirate is if you managed to be caught and actually like taken back somewhere in front of a judge who then decided to charge you with piracy. Right. Which is kind of hard to do, especially if you've got letters of Mark mm-hmm. and you, know, you didn't really have anyone able to police the region. They decided to make piracy a military crime rather than a civil one, which meant that it was subject to the vice admiralty, which is the, overse- like the, the board that oversees the Royal Navy, which means that now captains and admirals of the Royal Navy have the ability to prosecute piracy as a crime themselves rather than needing to take them, be- take take- them to a judge. Yeah, right. Which makes piracy a lot more dangerous for the pirates. Yeah. <laughs> and really, a lot of this is coming out of the idea of who controls the seas, because what you start seeing is this idea of international waters, right? The amount of control that you're exerting as a sovereign nation or as a colony. Is much more restricted to right around your colony and crimes such as piracy that happen in international waters are tacitly being patrolled by or policed by the royal navy Mm -hmm. not because britain actually has control um politically over those waters but because they're doing something called projecting power in that in that region which is showing that they're powerful enough to police international matters Mm -hmm. Which is a massive power play on their part, but they have the ships to back it up. Yeah, which is the main requirement for projecting power. Yeah, mean what you say and do what you say. So, all of a sudden, piracy becomes a lot more like what we know it as today—a crime that happens in, in in international waters rather than something subject to a specific nation's uh, set of laws mm-hmm. and something that is policed under more military rules rather than civil ones. All of which make it really dangerous to be a pirate.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Very, very dangerous. You have the 1718 Amnesty, which we've already talked about in uh, in relation to a number of the, the individual pirates, specifically mm-hmm. Blackbeard and Calico Jack. Vane, who was Calico Jack's former captain, the one who had been dismissed by them, kind of left to go on his own, mm-hmm. was one of the pirates who joined Blackbeard and like rejecting it. So you had him eventually executed for piracy as well whereas mm-hmm. you have a bunch of people who you know really all that they are are out of work naval uh off naval like seamen who, who
1: ex-navy ex-navy yeah yeah
0: who have spent the last five years since the war looking for work and possibly not being that successful at it and looking for a way out of the game yeah so now you to be a pirate, you, number one, have to see it as more profitable than going straight when you're given a very good opportunity to do so. Yeah. Two, be well enough equipped that you can stand going toe-to-toe with the best that the Royal Navy has to offer, which is no mean feat. hmm And three, understand that it's really, really difficult to make money now because all the ships that you want to take are much better defended than they used to be. Everybody's putting cannons on everything. Mm -hmm. You see pirates, you're going to, you're going to attack and you're going to call the Royal Navy as best you can. And you're going to be found and you're going to be tracked down and probably hung and then probably left to rot in a gibbet. Yeah. Which is not that attractive for a lot of people.
1: Can't imagine why.
0: (laughs) I mean, really, there was, there was a mandate given to the Royal Navy that basically said, this is peacetime. Let's make it peaceful in the Caribbean. Yeah. And they took that very, very seriously. They cracked down hard. And it was very effective at ending piracy. And really what that shows is that a lot of the reason piracy got so out of hand was because no one was doing anything about it. Because nobody wanted to. Mm -hmm. It was beneficial for everybody but the Spanish. And the Spanish didn't have the Navy uh, necessary to actually police that region because not only were they having to deal with pirates, but they were also having to deal with the English and the French at the time. As soon as there's enough of a reason to police that area, it's enforceable. Yeah. And piracy can be cracked down on. And there was finally enough public will and political will by uh, the early 18th century that they just went ahead and got rid of pirates. It wasn't as easy necessarily as saying it that way, but it almost happened that quickly. Yeah. There's so many factors that combine all at once that make it really, really difficult to be a pirate, really unattractive to be a pirate. And really anyone who stayed in piracy did one of a couple things. Either went to the Indian Ocean to harass the East India Company again. Mm Mm-hmm went to africa to harass the slave trade there but again it was nearly as dangerous uh from the royal navy as black bart found out uh as it was in the caribbean so not really that much better of an option Mm -hmm. or go to the barbary coast in the mediterranean which had always been a safe haven for for pirates and continue working there but really in the matter of 10-15 years piracy was taken from something that was almost to be expected or even encouraged by some nations to push to so far to the fringes of society that it was extinct almost overnight. Wow. Which is amazing. I mean, the fact that they cracked down on it that quickly
1: yeah. um,
0: is, is absolutely remarkable. Um, I mean, Governor Rogers of Bahamas offering that amnesty was not the only factor, but it was so uh, highly regarded by his peers as being effective in the combat against piracy that the motto of Bahamas in his honor was made, piracy is expelled, commerce restored. And it stayed that way until 1973. Wow. He was very highly regarded. There's one more thing that I'd like to talk about from this era in terms of piracy, which is that in 1724, so just a couple years after all of the stuff that we've just talked about, a book was published called A General History of the Pirates. And that's pirates with a Y, by the way. Okay. Supposedly by someone named Captain Charles Johnson, which was absolutely a pseudonym.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a pseudonym.
0: And this so-called Charles Johnson had been in contact with Governor Rogers, asking him about a number of things. He had been known to have corresponded with a number of former pirates about various things. And nobody really knew who he was, for Mm -hmm. sure. There are a number of candidates. One of the leading ones is uh, Daniel Defoe who is the novelist who wrote Robinson Crusoe mm-hmm. and really one of the proponents of the novel as a as an art form really he mm-hmm. was one of the early one of the earliest people to write what could be called a novel a lot of people ascribe it to him but there are a lot of other candidates of who it could be and occasionally you'll see this book as being for sale by Daniel Defoe mm-hmm. which is not accurate we don't know for sure it was him and in fact today most people think it wasn't okay but in any case This book was this rather sympathetic, highly romantic, dramatized biography of a number of pirates. Uh, All of the pirates that we talked about today make an appearance in this book. And it really helped to cast piracy into this dramatic swashbuckling kind of light where they're portrayed not as bloodthirsty murderers, which is what they are, Mm -hmm. but rather as these adventurous anti-heroes who are kind of railing against the establishment and and proponents of freedom and and all, all of this sort of stuff that we really associate with Caribbean piracy today. Yeah. All of this starts with a general history of the pirates. Just years after these people were alive, which is really <laughs> fascinating to me. Yeah. And this book is basically where we get every single idea about pirates either actual historical figures or you know, future fictitious ones, because absolutely Robert Louis Stevenson re- re- uh, read this book before writing Treasure Island. Right. Absolutely jamberry Barry read this before writing Peter Pan. These ideas of what being a pirate is all come from this book. You know, this is where this kind of Pirates of the Caribbean...
1: It's like the complete idiot's guide to pirates.
0: A little bit, but like that, that archetypal pirate, the one who wears the feather in his hat and mm-hmm. dresses in finery and, and you know, drinks tea before battle, that's all from this book. And it's, the, apparently volume one is relatively accurate with some embellishments and then volume two just kind of goes a little bit off the rails, maybe <laughs> even including... Like one of the pirates it includes might not have even ever existed necessarily. It gets it gets pretty out there. Okay. But the fact remains that even when it's factually accurate in terms of tone and bias, it's absolutely pro-pirate. It's very very much uh, lionizing these individuals for their so-called accomplishments, even though these accomplishments are crimes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And without tomato, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> without this book, we wouldn't think of caribbean piracy the way that we do whether or not we'd see it in a somewhat more forgiving light than say we see current day somali piracy Mm -hmm. uh, hard to say maybe it's possible but i mean in reality is there any reason that we should i don't know that's a very qualitative decision to make and whether or not these individuals had any redeeming qualities despite being criminals is, you know, kind of one of those very complicated, very human-type questions. Yeah. But as an institution, Caribbean piracy absolutely gets a pass for a lot of terrible, terrible things. Yeah. Because we have that image of the noble pirate, right? hmm And that all comes right from this era, exactly from the time that, you know, that these people lived. It came from the accounts of people who knew them. That's and amazing that,
1: how influential that one kind of chunk of time has had on, like, this entire image of, of piracy.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, just hearing about this book, like, I've got this book on order now. I have to read it. Yeah. I'm very, very curious about this book. I wish I had known about it sooner. I, I want to know what it says about these people. Yeah. Because, like I said, it's it's very forgiving, but, like, pirates, as as a cultural idea, occupy this really interesting place. I mean, there aren't a lot of groups that large who are absolutely outlaws Mm -hmm. that capture our imaginations as heroes as strongly as pirates do. Mm -hmm. And I find that really interesting. Yeah, me too. They kind of existed in this limbo of a 100 years or so where no one was really watching what they were doing.
1: Yeah, they occupy a really unique space in historical and social context.
0: Yeah, and in a way, the Caribbean piracy sort of tells the story of the colonization of North America, well of the Americas because it follows the same path that these nations did colonizing these continents. It's just that they were kind of the shadow to that process, right? They followed it but in reverse. Yeah. They were the they were the the dark kind of reflection of what was happening while these these nations under the Mercantilist system were trying to, you know, first set up these these outposts, these bastions of civilization, mm-hmm. uh, exploiting the land and the people there to trying to grow the pla- these places, to fight for control with each other in the region, uh, for these colonies to gain autonomy as they went. Every single step of this were followed by these pirates in the region who started out, you know, relatively legitimately as military figures, moved to, you know, Cannibalizing every single piece of trade that went back and forth, and even went as far as kind of establishing their own colonies in the region uh, at the same time as these nations did. You know, yeah. we talked about Tortuga, we talked about Port Royal, yep. um, Nassau, Bahamas. After the uh, after the the earthquake in Port Royal, Nassau became the new haven for pirates in mm-hmm. the Caribbean, and then with you know the conclusion of the spanish war of succession all of a sudden piracy became enough of a problem to stop ignoring yeah and that was kind of the moment where europe really gained firm control over those colonies it wasn't a wild west anymore out there it was a very orderly mercantilist system that couldn't be disrupted because it was too important Mm -hmm. to those european nations to allow it to be disrupted yeah but that chaos that those pirates represent, it mirrors the chaos of the uh, the nations themselves that were trying to go through this process of deciding what to do with yeah. these new lands. It's a
1: bit of a poetic reflection in that sense. A little bit, and
0: I think a little bit that's why pirates are romanticized. Yeah, we, especially here in North America, have a, a bit of an affinity for frontier,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is why. You know, we see things like uh, Western movies is so attractive, even when it's about, you know, more anti-hero cowboys. Yeah. Um, this idea of of expansion into the West has always been, I mean, much more explicitly stated in the U.S. with things like Manifest Destiny. Yeah. But we're not immune to it at all in Canada. The the idea of going west is is a very romanticized one, mm-hmm. and I think I think that idea of pioneers of the first people to enter an arena. Is, is very much romanticized and so it doesn't really surprise me that pirates get somewhat of the same treatment as being seen as those, those pioneers. Yeah It's just interesting to me that they were also committing horrible horrible crimes in the process <laughs> and were willing to give them that much of a pass in the name of romanticizing uh, the idea of frontier. Yeah so anyways, that's Caribbean piracy. It comes to a very uh, it comes to a very abrupt halt. Yeah. Um, they decided to stop it and they did very very quickly. <laughs> what can I say, the Royal Navy in the 18th century is not to be trifled with. No. <laughs> so, what do you think? Any uh any questions about what we've talked about today? Any final impressions about piracy?
1: I think the whole thing was like really exciting from beginning to end. Yeah. And I I especially love hearing, you know, some of the individual stories and the and the details that go into that and Mm -hmm. and also kind of the lack of detail that goes into that too like there is so much shrouded in mystery Mm -hmm. that we just don't know we don't have a record of and it's like that's just really really fascinating to me
0: people love beginnings and one of the coolest things about the discovery of the new worlds which is a very inaccurate way of putting it but (laughs) let's let's call it the way that we're used to calling it i suppose for convenience sake if nothing else. One of the one of the interesting things about the European discovery of the Americas is that it gave us a chance to start a lot of new things mm-hmm. and keep track of them.
2: Yeah. Because that's
0: the thing about beginnings. A lot of the beginnings in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, we have myths and legends about the beginnings. We have very sketchy records about the beginnings. Yeah. But we don't know for sure what happened. And I think a lot of people really itch for those origin stories. Yeah. But with... European discovery, we wrote it all down. We were there. We had people paying attention. Mm-hmm. And to watch that process unfold is new and exciting and holds a lot of very like unknown factors and anything could happen. And I think that is much more exciting than looking at very old, very entrenched, very established yeah. Uh, institutions.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And the pirates were so emblematic of that freshness because they literally had no one telling them what to do. They were basically an anarchic society.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that while most people would not necessarily want that for themselves, I think a lot of people are very, very curious about what that looks like.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and having understandably such understandably
0: so. Absolutely. And having such a well documented instance of that mm-hmm. is it doesn't surprise me at all that all the people are as drawn to it as they are. Yeah. And of course we missed writing stuff down. Of course we missed lots of things. Yeah. But compared to, I don't know, say the establishment of Rome as a society or, you know, things like that, it's much better kept track of. We have a much better idea of what happened. And I, I think there's there's a lot of fascination around that. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I had a lot of fun with this topic. I really yeah. enjoyed looking this one up.
1: Awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun.
0: And I'm really glad to have you back on the show. Thank uh, you. It was a pleasure. Part of what makes Caribbean piracy so fascinating is that there was really only one time in history when it could have existed. After the discovery of the Americas, but before the full imposition of order on the American colonies. That uniqueness, along with the larger than life personalities involved and our fascination with anti heroes, created something that sparks the imagination, no matter how violent and illegal it really was. Next time on HI 101, we'll be talking about Mormonism. That episode will be up on August 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.